John chapter 9 is our text this morning, if you will. As many of you know, just a few weeks ago, the author of the novel entitled The Satanic Verses, a fellow by the name of Salman Rushdie, was stabbed about 12 times while delivering a lecture in upstate New York. He is expected to survive, and the culprit, a fella, 24-year-old from Fairlawn, New Jersey, by the name of Hadi Matar, was arrested. Uh, he is called, referred to as a suspect, even though it was done in front of a substantial audience and caught on video. But he's still a sub- suspect, and of course he will be convicted. We hope. <coughs> the title, The Satanic Verses, refers to a series of verses that are actually in the Quran, that is, the Muslim Bible, if you will. And it's a, prof- uh, it's a part of the, uh, their holy scriptures in which the Prophet Muhammad allegedly is struggling to clearly distinguish who is speaking to him as uh, he writes down the words for their holy book. Is it his God Allah or is it Satan? He doesn't know. Nonetheless, he pens these words as they are dictated to him as being advice for the people of Islam. And the book underscores, this book that Rashti writes, underscores this episode in the life of Muhammad. And the result is that it does cast doubt on the um, infallibility of Muhammad. Uh, Just as we understand Christ to be infallible, Muslims believe that Muhammad is infallible as well. And of course, this book would cast some doubt on that. Rushdie's book invoked the wrath of many Muslim people, but it especially invoked the wrath of the supreme leader of Iran, the Ayatollah Khomeini. This goes back all the way to 1989. Uh, Khomeini considered this book to be blasphemous. It was a dishonoring of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. And so the Ayatollah called for a fatwa. A fatwa is an edict. And this fatwa insists that Rushdie be put to death. And so Rushdie has been avoiding death threats and attempts on his life ever since 1989. The bounty on his head is now over $3 million. So that's quite an incentive for this 24-year-old from Fairlawn Um, No question about it. Now, Rushdie is an Indian man from Great Britain. Uh, He does not profess to be a Christian. He doesn't even really profess to be a Muslim. He professes to be a secularist. In fact, he claims to be an atheist. But on occasion, and I don't know why, on occasion over the years, he has tried to persuade people that he has gone back to his Muslim roots. Uh, but obviously has made really no difference in his plight. He more recently left his place of hiding and became an NYU professor. And uh, more recently, again, he was delivering this lecture and he was stabbed. Now, the reason for this fatwa on a part of the Ayatollah is that Islam is an honor religion, an honor religion. 
That is to say that there's a particular code of honor that if it is disrespected, if, if there is no honor given, as in the case here of the Prophet Muhammad, honor must be vindicated through the hands of the Muslim people, even if, or especially by violence. And that's the way it is. Honor must be given. It must be vindicated. And to us, as Christians, that sounds rather absurd, doesn't it? Imagine if we were to seek vengeance on everyone who has spoken up against Jesus Christ or written against Jesus Christ. But the truth is, my friends, them, but we as well, we are apt to accept violence when it's done in the name of an, an accepted belief system. When, when there's a group of people who accept a particular belief system, right or wrong, but when we are joined with others, we are more willing to accept violence over it. And, and so, although this may go against uh, common sense, there is a considerable number, percentage of Islamic people who would endorse honor killing. My own nephew lost his mother and father in Pakistan in their kitchen over a cup of tea when his father, a Pakistani pastor, was giving counsel to someone from his church and the man pulled out a gun and killed both my nephew's father and mother and fled. He was caught, but to my knowledge, he has yet to be charged with a crime. He's been released. Why? Because this was deemed an honor killing. Look back just a couple summers ago when we had all the racial riots in the major cities, all the violence, and it was acceptable. In fact, it was steeped in violence. But again and again, it was referred to as mostly peaceful demonstrations. And we all saw the reports, right? Mostly peaceful demonstrations. And behind them, behind a reporter, there's this building burning down. There's cars engulfed in flames. There's people chanting murder. And it's mostly peaceful demonstrations. Why was that acceptable? Because when there is a group of people, enough people who believe in something, somehow violence becomes acceptable. But it's not just them. You go back in our American history, back into the 20s, 30s, 40s, even in the 50s, and you see all the segregation violence that led to lynchings and rapes, all in the name of their own personal morality. There was enough people to say, hey, this is acceptable, so we can do it. And what I find amazing is that this was done in the Bible-thumping Protestant South. So people lynched on Saturday, went to Sunday school on Sunday. And it was acceptable. Why? Because enough people said it was acceptable even if the word of God said otherwise. Well, Dr. Al Mohler makes a great point when it comes to this matter of honor religions. And he says that Christianity is not 
and honor religion. We're not. In fact, at the core of our faith in Jesus Christ is that he was willing to be dishonored. Our Christ came here to earth to be dishonored. He left his place of glory and came to earth in order to become sin for us. Does it get any more dishonoring than that? He bore our iniquities. The honorable, sinless one took upon himself our guilt at the cross. Christ was blasphemed. Christ was ignored. Christ was pummeled. He was mocked. He was crucified. He was killed. He gave up his glory, his honor, in order to become one of us. As Christians, my friends, as Christians, we are not called to defend Jesus Christ. We are called to honor Christ ourselves and to defend his truth. We are not here to defend Christ. We are here to defend his truth. Our lives, ours, yours, brothers, sisters, Christians, we should be honoring him. We are to place our faith in Christ and defend the truth of Christ. And therefore, we do not have to defend the honor of Christ. With the defense of the truth of Christ in mind, we look at chapter 9 of John. I think one of the great perplexing questions of this life is, why do I suffer? Why do I suffer? And at times we find different ways of phrasing that same question, but at the end it's still the same thing. Why do I suffer? Sometimes we say, why do good people suffer? And usually we include ourselves in the good people, right? Sometimes we say, what did I do to deserve this? In other words, I'm pretty good. I don't deserve this, God. I can think of others who do, but I'm not one of them. Sometimes we say, does God really love me? In other words, I am more lovable than what you think, Lord. You should be treating me better. Sometimes we say, maybe Christ loves me, but he's not powerful enough to protect me. And what we're doing there is simply trying to rescue the honor of Jesus Christ. We're trying to get him off the hook. Because the idea of a loving God who does not protect me, does not keep suffering out of my life, who does not keep evil from my doors, does not sound very good. It does not sound very honorable. So here we are, chapter 9 of John. And the question is asked, why is this particular person suffering? And that's my first point. It's that question. Why is there suffering? Uh, many people question Christ and uh, many people question Christianity. In fact, in my 30 plus years of doing pastoral ministry, I have heard the question many, many times. I would assume you have too. Maybe you've asked. People question Christianity, people question Christ simply because there's so much suffering in this world. And there is a lot of suffering in this world. Uh, we have wars, we have famines, we have injustices, we have disease, we have poverty. You know, just yesterday I was down in my old neighborhood. And when I say my old neighborhood, it goes way back into the 1960s and 70s. I was with my one son and we were in the area. I said, you know, you don't mind if I just drive through the old neighborhoods. 
And boy, it was downright depressing, especially when I saw my house boarded up. Encircled with poverty and brokenness. How ugly. This is a mean, broken world. Theft, despotic dictators. But we also have those democratically elected charlatans that heap chaos into our world as well. There is no shortage of suffering and evil in this world. And we seem to do okay with that until that suffering overflows into our own personal experience. And very often we end up saying this, God must not be very faithful, or maybe God must not be very good, or maybe he's not so powerful after all. Why? Because I suffer. Some people conclude that God doesn't exist because so much evil happens in their own lives. I find it interesting that people begin to determine truth based on their own experiences. Their hard experiences define not only their reality, but determine in their own mind what truth is. If I suffer, here's the truth. God is not good, or God is not powerful, or God does not exist. Some people, people even say, look, you want to believe in God? Good, he exists. But if that is the God that allows me to suffer, I'll have nothing to do with him. Because they just cannot accept suffering in life. John chapter 9 gives to us a particular irony if you read through this chapter. And I'm going to tell you now, we're not going to read the whole account. We're simply going to do a hop and a skip. We're not going to take a flight around the world or from continent to continent and look at all the details. We're just going to do a short flight and back. In John chapter 9... There's a particular irony if you read on. You'll notice here that there's a blind man who receives both physical sight and spiritual sight. Meanwhile, the religious people, the spiritual people, become increasingly more spiritually blind. How ironic. Look at the context as we look at verse 1. Verse 1 reads this way. As he, referring to Jesus Christ, and by the way, you'll see here he's with his disciples. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. But take a look at the context. Go backwards to chapter 8. We'll just take a look at the last two verses there. Look at chapter 8, verse 58 and then 59. And Jesus Christ is in a temple and he said... Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, he's saying he's eternal. Only God is eternal. They knew what he was saying, right? And look at how they respond. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw it at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What a sight. This would be the equivalent of us gathering outside in 30 minutes. And you decided to throw stones at the preacher. And he gets in his car and drives away. Can you imagine that? I can't. <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> Jesus Christ hid. That means he's ducking. That means he's fleeing the temple. 
And then we jump into chapter 9. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And I mention this because just as Jesus Christ and his 12 disciples regained their composure, they are now regaining their breath, and they make their way back into the streets of Jerusalem. They pass by this blind man who is begging. And somehow they are aware that he's been blind from birth. That shows to me that this man must have been a staple on that corner. They must have passed him many times before. He's been there a long time. Uh, I've been taking a lot of trips to Newark Airport lately. And for years now, three, four years, every time I go to one red light at Raymond Boulevard, there's a homeless man who sits there on a bench. No matter what time I'm there, he's there. And no matter what time of year, he's there. Cold or hot. Freezing or sweltering, he's wearing the same clothes. Layers and layers of clothes. And I see him there every time, and our eyes meet every time. This man must have been there a long time because they knew that he was born blind. They knew something about him that they would otherwise not know. And I point all this out to you because I want you to see the context that Jesus Christ went from being dishonored people throwing rocks at him he goes from being dishonored his life being threatened to healing a blind beggar from running for his life to giving new life to those of you who find life to be right now rather difficult if you are suffering, maybe it's because of a diagnosis or maybe because of a relationship or maybe financially, whatever the reason may be. If you are suffering, I want you to see our Christ. He does not allow the prevailing circumstances of life to deter him from helping you. He goes from running for his life to healing a blind man. And if he cared about this blind man so much, I assure you he, he cares about you. And he is able. At verse 2, we see a very philosophical question being asked. The disciples look to Jesus Christ and they say, Rabbi, which means teacher. Rabbi, who sinned? It's a great question. Who sinned? This man or his parents? that he was born blind. Whose fault is it? Now, the common belief was that personal suffering was due to one of two reasons. One being, I have sinned and therefore I have incurred the wrath of God and now I'm suffering. This was the case of Job, right? Job lost everything and his good th friends, four of them, came to his house. They meant well, but they were foolish. They wanted to help. They made things worse. They said, Job, what did you do to deserve this? And Job said, I didn't do anything not to deserve this. He lost everything, remember? And they said, Job, you're lying to us. He said, I'm not lying. Well, then you're not very self-aware, Job. Look back and see what you did. Because obviously, God is punishing you for what you did. Job said, no. I did not do anything to deserve this. 
And the other notion was that if you are not personally guilty and deserving of this, then it must have been your parents. And so God is punishing you for the sins of your parents. So the sins of your parents are flowing over onto you and now you're paying the price. And that's the way people thought. And again, I point this out to you because like them, we are so heavily influenced by the common beliefs of our culture. Think about it. How often have we embraced what the culture says, even when it disagrees with what the scripture says? We are so willing to say, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but you know what? The culture has persuaded me otherwise. Now, understand that in the Jewish culture, the Bible was very clear. They should have known better than to believe this. But this is what the culture said. Even the religious culture said it, and so they believed it. How often do we do likewise? The culture dictates and persuades. And we embrace what the culture says and we deny what the scriptures say. Beware. Be careful. Be cautious. Know what the word of God says. And I would, this is my recommendation to you. When the culture and the scriptures clash, choose the scriptures. You will not go wrong. Well, before I say anything else about what, what Jesus Christ answers to them, and let me just note to you uh, that sin does have ramifications. You know this. I'll remind you. Our sins do have ramifications. Um, my sin is going to impact my life. My sin will impact my decisions. My sin will impact my health. In fact, we read about that every month, don't we, when we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 11 says, that is why, because of unrepentant, unconfessed sin, that is why some of you are sick and some of you have died. The ramifications of sin. My sins will impact the degree of blessings from God to me, or the lack of blessings from God to me. So, So there are ramifications for sin. But notice something. Also, my sin is going to impact those in my sphere of influence. Those who enter into my circle of influence, those people who I rub shoulders with, is going to be are going to be impacted by my sin as well. Whatever the sin may be. It may be severe, it may not be. But you see, my sins are going to impact you. Your sins are going to impact us. Your sins, my sins are going to impact our families, our children, our grandchildren. It's that simple. We can't get away from it. Take, for example, something as simple and as large as substance abuse. My sin of addiction, whether it is whatever drug, whatever liquid, alcohol, it's going to impact you and the people in your circumference of influence. Now, again, it might be a big impact, it might be a a, a lesser impact, but it will impact. Maybe it will be just shame, maybe it will be catastrophe. Whatever the case, there's going to be impact. A poor marriage is going to impact the children. And yes, children too tend to be able to bounce back so well but listen a poor marriage is going to influence the children 
and some kids it'll be more radical than others, but all will be impacted. And so it falls on us to do our best to live in harmony with all that are in our world, in our lives. But I do want you to see this. This is extremely important because the disciples are asking whose fault was it? Was it his own fault or was it the fault of his parents? Please understand this. Look, God does not hold the children responsible for the sins of their parents. God will not hold you responsible for your parents' sin. Neither will God hold your children responsible for your sins. My children will never have to answer for my sins. God will not punish my children for my sin. He will not punish your children for your sin. Now there are ramifications for sinful behavior. In fact, you know what science tells us today? Science tells us that my habits will develop markers in my DNA. It will not change my DNA, but it will put markers in my DNA so that good behavior will be passed down to next generations, up to seven generations. But so will sinful, bad habits. Those markers will be passed on seven generations to children. doesn't change the DNA, but it gives particular propensities. And once again, we see the Bible catching, or science catching up with the Bible. Right? Once again. My friends, there are ramifications, but never will God punish you for the sins of your parents. Never. How do I know? Well, the Bible tells us so. Take a look at Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 20. This is one of the places in which we see this clearly. Ezekiel 18.20, I think it's on a wall for you. No, it's not. But, so I'll read it to you, unless you could find it very quickly. Should I wait? Okay, here we go. Ezekiel 18.20, it reads this way. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the inequity of the father, or the, I'm sorry, for the iniquity of the father. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. We are answerable for our conduct, for our lives. And we cannot answer for the sin of others. And so here we can very quickly dismiss the idea that God is punishing this blind man in John chapter 9 for the sins of his parents. He is not blind because of his parents. He is not born blind because of the sins of his parents. And so with this in mind, let me just take a little detour here. We do not have to repent for the sins of our forefathers as Christians, as individuals, or as a nation. So, when some woke theorist tells you to repent for what our forefathers did, my advice to you, ignore it. Certainly, we ought to acknowledge what our forefathers did. We should acknowledge the sins of our forefathers, lest we repeat it. But we do not have to repent for them. 
unless of course we are imitating them, unless of course we are doing what they did, then we should repent with them. Keep in mind, my friends, as we look at ourselves as a nation during this episode of so much uh, racial conflict, that we need to look and see what our parents did, what our forefathers did, and if there are any sinful tendencies that now come on to us, that we are doing what they did, we should repent. We should repent for ourselves and look back at what they did. There needs to be repentance. In fact, that's what we see in the Old Testament book of Ezra, chapter 9, beginning of verse 6. That's exactly what they did. Having said that, whereas we cannot repent for what they did, we should lament for what they did. We should look back and say, oh, the horror, the wrongness. Lord, keep us from ever doing what our forefathers did. Never in any way look back and say, well, you know, that was just the times. We should lament over what they did. We should acknowledge what they did. But we can't repent for what they did. The blame is on them, not this generation, unless we are repeating what they did. Repent and lament are two different things. We need to keep that in mind. So, does this mean then that this blind man is born blind and relegated to begging in the darkness for who knows how many years now? He's an adult. Because he was guilty of sin even before he was born? Well, we all know that it is impossible for a fetus in utero to commit sin. We know that he did not sin even before he was born. And we see here that this question that the disciples are asking is so infantile theologically. And again, a reminder of ourselves, how we could think along the same lines. We could be so theologically childish. If they could, we could. Sometimes we are. We need to think biblically. We need to think soundly. We need to be theologians. That's right, not just me, but you, theologians, in order to live out the Christian life in a way that's victorious. So, why then was this man born blind? It's a great question. Well, look at verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus Christ explains very well, very clearly, as to why this man is born blind. Are you with me? As I've said many times before, as, as fast as this world is changing, some of it stays the same. Some of it doesn't change at all. Uh, and, and how we see suffering is one of those things that doesn't seem to change when it ought to. When it comes to suffering, we tend to think along the same lines uh, as the rest of the world. And some people will understand that suffering comes because we live in a broken world. A broken world produces more brokenness. But you know, most people, maybe even among us, but most people we encounter will say the reason why that person is suffering is because, maybe you've heard this, he's got bad karma. (laughs) What they mean is this, what goes around comes around. In other words, you did it, now it comes back to you. 
Now it's going to kick you. And we laugh, obviously, bad karma. However, we do have a Christianized version of bad karma. This is the Christianized version. God is so angry and God is so wrathful that he is going to make your life miserable if you don't confess and repent. That's the Christian version of bad karma. And again, whereas it is true, God does respond to unrepented sin. However, listen carefully. God is not an angry God waiting to zap you from his heavenly throne. He is not. He is not. His reaction to your life is couched in love for his children. It is a corrective wrath, one designed to heal you, not injure you. God is not seeking vengeance against his own children who he has redeemed. He's not. His wrath over our sins is like that of a mother who wants nothing but good for her child. And so she corrects him. So she disciplines him. If you have children, you know what I mean. (laughs) If you don't have children, you know what I mean. (laughs) Often we look over our shoulders and we see people doing certain things. We're like, and then something happens. Kaboom. Suffering, evil, troubles come on their lives. And we think to ourselves, well, what did they think was going to happen? You know, I don't want to be a callous person, but on occasion, um, I hear of somebody who was uh, climbing cliffs without a harness. They fall, they break their back. A friend of mine lost a nephew that way. And, and, you know, my first reaction was, well, what did you think was going to happen? It's pretty risky business. What did you think was going to happen? And when we're living with sin, well, in sin, and doing it willingly, well, we we look and say, well, did you think that God was going to be silent forever? Did you really think that God was not going to respond? But when suffering comes our way, when trials come our way, when grief besets us, do we say, well, what did I think was going to happen? No, usually we say, this is not fair. This is not right. Why, God, are you doing this to me? Well, look at the response of Jesus Christ as to why suffering came on this man. And I don't want to in any way belittle his suffering. He was fully blind and he was relegated to begging in order to eat at the end of the day. Look at how Christ responds. Verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. It was not because he or his parents sinned that he's blind, but rather he is blind so that the work of God would be displayed in him. And so Jesus Christ here takes the root cause out of the realm of human responsibility, human fault or blame, and he places this man's suffering into the category of making God's presence known. 
to both him and to others so that God would receive the glory. And some of you are saying, oh, wow. To some of you, you're thinking, well, this would be the most delightful and assuring answer for why I suffer. People will get to know more of God when they see God's work in my life. And I'm okay with that. In fact, I love it. But some of you are thinking along the other lines, and you're saying this is the most egotistical, unjust, imbalanced, underhanded divine act I've ever seen in my life. That I would have to suffer. That this blind man would have to suffer. Since birth, in order that others would see the hand of God, in order that others would have to see the presence of God, To you, this is either a great sacrificial privilege that is to be used by God in such a mighty way, or it is the most reprehensible thing that God could do to anyone. And I think all of us would say this, Lord, what a great honor to be used in such a great way by you. But please don't do that to me. Don't use me this way. Good for him, but Lord, please, not me. Well, to better understand what Jesus Christ is doing here, we have to go to the very end of the Gospel of John, chapter 20 of 21 chapters. Look at chapter 20 and verse 31. There the Gospel explains to us why all these things are being recorded. And in chapter 20 of John, verse 31, we read these words. John writes these words. But these are written... So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things are being written so that you will believe. This thing is happening here to this blind beggar. He is blind and begging so that he will believe. These things occurred. 2,000 years ago, so that the people who were walking the streets of Jerusalem would believe. Is it worth it? These things happened 2,000 years ago, so that we today would read and believe. Is it worth it? But look at this. This happened to this particular man, born blind and relegated to begging. This happened so that he would believe and find eternal life. Is it worth it? It's a pretty big cost. Let's say he was 26 years old. I'm guessing. Blind and begging for all those years so that he would find eternal life. Is it worth it? Absolutely. If that's what it takes to save your soul, so be it. All those years of suffering would culminate in reason to believe and follow Jesus Christ. Now do you see the mercy of God through this wretched experience of blindness and begging? Do you see God's mercy to him? 
some years ago, many years ago, a hundred years ago, a writer, hymn writer by the name of Fanny Crosby was about six years old when she was sick and her, her doctor, the family doctor, was out of town and so they, they called another doctor and of course he, they, at that time they would come to the house and, um, and this doctor was not an actual doctor. They did not know that. Uh, he was a quack. And he looked at her eyes and he prescribed some sort of mustard for her eyes. And so they put the salve in her eyes and it actually blinded her. Six weeks old. She lived 95 years completely blind. And in the process of those 95 years, she came to know Christ early on. But God did not heal her. She lived a blind life. And in those years, she wrote over 8,000 hymns glorifying Christ, glorifying God. 8,000. And if you run your fingers through that hymnal in front of you, you will see her name at the bottom of the page many times over. She wrote hymns like Blessed Assurance and To God Be the Glory and many, many others. At one point in her life, a preacher said to her, Fanny, I think it's such a great pretty pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered you with so many other gifts. And look at how she responded. She said, do you know that if at birth I had been able to make just one petition, it would have been that I would be born blind. Because when I get to heaven, the very first face that I will see, the very first face that will gladden my sight will be my Savior. This is such an odd way of thinking that most of us wonder whether or not she's speaking the truth. Was this just a spin? Was she just trying to make lemonade out of lemons? No, she meant it. This is such a rare way of seeing suffering that I had to go back as I was writing this. The only instance I could think of something of the sort happened over 100 years ago. And I'm telling you the story. It's not very common. Why? Because we do not know what to do with the suffering that God brings our way. We do not know how to embrace it. We do not know how to use it for his glory. We see it as an unfairness towards us when in reality God says, I am giving you this so that my power, my presence may be made manifest in you. Her suffering, in the case of, uh, of Crosby, caused her to long for more of Jesus Christ. It caused her to serve Christ more eagerly, more readily. The beggar's suffering caused them to call for Christ and want Christ and pursue Christ. His suffering caused them to believe in Christ. Real quick here, just look at John chapter 9 there. Follow me quickly. Uh, verse 7, look at the progression of this man's faith. Verse 7, he obeys Christ and he goes to the pool to wash his eyes as Christ told him to. Verse 11, when questioned, he refers to Jesus Christ. He says, the man called Jesus. Look at the progression. Verse 17, he refers to Jesus as a prophet. Verse 33, he says, he is sent from God. Verse 38, he acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of Man, which was a title for the Savior. And then again, verse 38, he says, Lord, I believe. 
and he worshipped Christ. All because he suffered, because he was blind. His blindness took him to Christ, not away from Christ. Uh, which, which to me is amazing because meanwhile, while all this is happening, it is the spiritual people who rejected Christ. They became more and more blind. So let me close with this, a series of questions for you. Uh, by the way, this man is healed, right? Uh, Jesus Christ spits on the ground, makes some mud, puts it on his eye. That sounds a little disgusting, but hey, listen, he got his eyes, his eyes back, his vision back. Let me ask you, what do you do with your suffering? Do your hardships draw you away from God because it seems so unfair? Or do your sufferings draw you to Christ? Have you considered that God is getting your attention by allowing you to suffer? And so my question to you is, what is God saying to you? What does God want from your heart? Have you considered that your sufferings are designed to draw you to God, to Christ? It's not intended to repel you. And so, in which direction are you gravitating? As you suffer through life, in which direction are you gravitating? Are you developing a longing for your Savior, or are you beginning to resent your Savior? Do do your feelings about God dishonor Him, or is your heart growing for Him because of your suffering? Ask yourself this question. How can I bring honor to God through the struggles that I face? How can I make God known through my hardships? What can I do to take full advantage of the struggles that I'm facing in order to make Christ known? My friends, we are called to defend the honor. We are called not to defend the honor of Christ. We are called to defend the truth of Christ. And here is the truth we need to defend. God is good. God is powerful. God is merciful. And he is forever at my side. He is my God. My Savior. Let me pray.